Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk Nerdy. Today is Monday, April 20th, 2020, and I'm the host of the show, Cara Santa Maria. And before we dive in, I want to thank those of you who make Talk Nerdy possible this week. Remember, Talk Nerdy is and will always be 100% free to download, and that's because of the support of listeners just like you. This week, I want to call out Michael Gaucher, Christopher Pitts, Mary Neva, Pasquale Gelati, Ulrika Hagman, Dudas Infinitas, Brian Holden, Daniel Lang, and David J.E. Smith for your support of the show. If you want to support Talk Nerdy, you've just got to go to Patreon dot com slash a talk nerdy or you can visit my website carasantamaria.com there you can click through to the patreon page and you can also find the talk nerdy store that's also at talknerdymerch.com and um you know i think some of the best ways to support the show are to rate and review on apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, stitcher spotify wherever you listen to podcasts um that really helps me out a lot All right, guys. So I am super excited about this week's episode because I had the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Philip Goff. He is a philosophy professor at Durham University and a consciousness researcher. And his newest book is called Galileo's Error, Foundations for a New Science of Consciousness. We're going to be talking about something called panpsychism. Interesting. So guys, without any further ado, here he is, Dr. Philip Goff. Well, Philip, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Cara. It's great to be here. Glad we managed to hook up. Oh, I know, right? It's been a while um, that we've been going a little bit back and forth. And then, of course, the world turned upside down. Um, None of us expected that. So I think one of the, I don't know if you could quite call it a benefit, but one of the things that's been happening um, that I've noticed as a podcaster is that, well, everyone's at home. And so they're ready to record. Yeah, yeah. these crazy times we're living in. Although I was just about to come over to the US actually to do some conferences and stuff. And yeah, obviously it's all Ugh. been cancelled, but uh, oh, that's, no. not, yeah, the that's worst, not the worst tragedy of, of this scenario. I keep thinking I'm going to wake up and it's all a dream. But, yeah. I know, I know. And I do... I feel bad um, for a lot of authors and scientists who had books scheduled to come out um, kind of right around now because all of their events have been canceled and they're having to move everything to an online format. Um, Luckily, yours came out a bit ago, right? Yeah, well, I was just going to say my colleague, Emily Thomas, uh, who's just got a trade book, just come out on the philosophy of travel just as the world has these t- crazy travel restrictions. And so that's a bit of bad luck. But uh, yeah, oh, no. my book came out in uh, last November, I think. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, it got a chance to have a little bit of publicity before the world shut down. So. <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, that's very good. And I think it did benefit us then that, um, that we had to push back the interview a few times. So I'm glad to be chatting with you today. And I'm really excited to be talking to you about um, kind of the concept of your book, Galileo's Error, Foundations for a New Science of Consciousness. This approach has a lot of crossover with the stuff that I've been interested in lately, um, educationally, even less so with my scientific kind of um, communication and my journalistic coverage. But I've gone back to school to work on a PhD in clinical psychology. And my um, my emphasis is actually in existential psychotherapy. So there's a lot of f- philosophy that feeds into this type of psychology. And of course, consciousness, I think, is a really important um, conversation to be had 
That said, um, I, I wonder how different our views are about consciousness. So I'm very excited to dig into um, what you think. I don't know what 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 is existential. I don't know. Well, maybe this is not, <laughs> not, not the time to talk about it. Maybe, but uh, I don't. Uh, it sounds interesting. It's it's really interesting. It's basically just a a, a therapeutic intervention or a therapeutic um, idea. I guess you could say it's a whole kind of theory that's informed by existential views. So instead of taking a more psychoanalytic or a more cognitive behavioral approach to psychotherapy, you take a approach that's all about kind of deeper things like meaning, authenticity. Um, and then there are some views about like, you know, fears of death and uh, loneliness and finding meaning um, that's, that a lot of existential therapists think underlie why people might seek therapy. Right. Does that have yeah. any connection to... Um What's his name now? Viktor Frankl, logotherapy? Absolutely. Yeah. He was definitely one of the kind of, in some ways, what people think of as a founder. And he, it's interesting because when it comes to existentialism, and I think the reason that I bring this up is because there's some parallels with um, what we're going to be talking about, panpsychism. When it comes to existentialism, there are two well, there are a lot of ways you could slice and dice it, but there are two big camps that seem to play nice together. And one is a very secular camp, and that's the camp I'm in, which is kind of a uh, Yalom, Irvin Yalom camp that it takes things from a, a more atheistic approach. And then of course there is a more religious camp where you might see like a Kierkegaard or you might see like a Viktor Frankl, but the, it's kind of two sides of the same conversation. You know, one of the differences is there is inherent meaning in the world and it's our job to uncover it. And then my view is that there is no, no meaning in the world and it's our job to create it. A bit of trivia. There's this, the, my UK publisher is the same publisher that Victor Frankl had back in the day. Oh wow! Right. Oh man, but, that's um, cool. Uh, yeah, no, that, I mean, this is not my area of expertise, but you know, I am. I, I have an interest in in um, in psychotherapy, and I think it's I think it's been in the back of my head actually somehow that you know mm. should they is the sort of a lack of thinking about the meaning of life and finding meaning in existence and um, you know so that yeah that's that I find that really interesting. I'll I'll, I'll investigate further i love it i mean there i've always kind of felt like there's a lot of crossover between psychology and philosophy because you know some would argue I, I guess i'm interested in your take on this my background is neuroscience and you know i was kind of trained as a much more kind of logical positivist originally um much more of a materialist that's in some ways been changing as I learn more about constructivism and postmodern views. And I'm trying to figure out how to square all those circles together. But um, philosophy and, and modern science, natural science, in many ways, have long been attempting to answer some of the same fundamental questions, haven't they? Yeah, absolutely. And um, well, I mean, we might get onto this. I, I mean, I do think our scientific story of the world does have implications perhaps you know for, for people's sense of their place in the world and you know people's mental health ultimately i mean so you know i'm inclined to believe i'm inclined to think our our our, our standard scientific worldview does not have a place for consciousness uh and i i think that in itself can lead to a, a sense of alienation. You know, I think many of us, you know, we know we have feelings and experiences and our 
official scientific worldview tells us, no, all that's going on in our heads is sort of complicated electrochemical signaling. And I think many people feel intuitively, that's not the same thing. Um, uh, and I think this can lead to the, you know, what, uh, this disenchantment of nature, this sense that we don't have a place in the universe. And, you know, I think I talk a little bit about this, you know, in, in the final chapter of my book. I mean, ultimately, when we're doing science or philosophy, we should be interested in what not view not which view we'd like to be true, but which view is most likely to be true. And I, mm-hmm. I make a case for panpsychism, which we'll probably get onto, is uh, the, the probable truth of panpsychism on on the basis that I think it, it it offers the best scientific approach to consciousness. But I also think it's maybe a picture of the world that's slightly more consonant with our mental and spiritual well being. Uh, it's a picture of the universe where we can sort of understand our place within it a bit more, understand how we fit into it. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm in some way a hard-nosed scientist philosopher. You know, we should be looking for the truth. You know, that's the that's the fundamental thing. But I think it, we don't do enough of reflecting on how scientific theory and scientific worldview impacts on how we see ourselves fitting into the universe. And I think that is important. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that the more that I kind of learn about um, realistic sort of constructivist and postmodern views, and I'm not talking about um, really, really extreme versions, kind of like solipsistic views, but but more kind of middle of the road ideas in this kind of vein, the more I start to really, I think in many ways, um, support, I don't know, um, endorse this idea that of course, the world is, or the universe is, or nature is, right? And and the the question becomes, if we are the ones who are contemplating it, filtering it through our tools and our consciousness, at a certain point, does what is matter if what is is only itself through our own eyes? And that becomes a really interesting question, like this kind of idea of existence as something that is a concrete thing that cannot be accessed or the idea of how do we determine it through our own tools right and and philosophy uh, natural science these are tools these are just um methods and and descriptions um that make sense to us as human beings like our perspective is obviously very different than the perspective of let's say a an alien from many galaxies away yeah, yeah, absolutely, and um, yeah, I mean, I, but I think there's the, there are multiple things philosophy has a role to play. I think, yeah, part of it is reconciling our understanding of ourselves with the understanding of the universe that science gives to us. But I also think, you know, that there are ways, and this is maybe people is a bit neglected. There are ways in which philosophy can contribute to our understanding of, of what the universe is like. Certainly, with respect to consciousness, I think, you know, at the moment, you know, we know that consciousness exists. We know that um, nothing is more obvious or evident than the reality of feelings or experiences. But at this stage, we, we really have no clue as to how to fit consciousness into our scientific story of the universe. You know, d- despite, you know, great progress on our scientific understanding of the brain, we still don't have even the beginnings of a of an explanation of of how 
complicated electrochemical signaling is somehow able to give rise to this inner subjective world of colors and sounds and smells and tastes that each of us knows in our own case. So, you know, I think there is a real philosophical puzzle there and, you know, how what we know about ourselves from the inside fits together with, with what science tells us about the body and the brain from the outside. And, you know, some, I mean, some people think this is just, you know, we just need to do more neuroscience. We just need to carry on with our conventional ways of investigating the brain and we'll one day solve this mystery. But, you know, what I try to press in my work is, is as a philosopher, is I, I think this isn't just another scientific problem. There are many ways in which this is quite unique and, um, and that there are features of it that mean that our conventional scientific approach isn't really suited to dealing with it. And in fact, wasn't really designed to deal with it. So that doesn't mean we, we will never have a science of consciousness, but it means if we want a science of consciousness, we might need to rethink what science is. So, mm. yeah. So I would love to ask you kind of some basic questions about consciousness as I have understood it throughout my academic career going from psychology. So my undergrad was psychology and philosophy. My master's was neuroscience. And now I'm moving into clinical psychology and my PhD much, you know, years and years and years later after being out of school for a long time. So kind of I, let's see, I did my master's degree in 07. So my kind of neuroscience um, expertise not that it stopped there. I've been kept keeping up with the literature as a science communicator, but that was the era when I was doing neuroscience and I was working in a kind of network neuroscience. And so where I kind of have always understood consciousness to, I'll use the word arise because that's sort of the right word for my framework has always been as, um, as a property that sort of, exists. Um, yes, secondary to to neuroscience, but as something that's a little bit gestalt in that you can't break it down to individual uh, neurons. You can't break it down to individual networks, to neurochemistry. It's um, an emergent property, as some scientists might say. Is that a view that you take or is that a view that you kind of fundamentally disagree with? Um, yes, I suppose it Depends what you mean by emergent, really. There's, I mean, there's, mm -hmm. there's sometimes it's sort of emergent is a sort of magic word for it appears and we don't really know how, <laughs> or is it the miracle happens <laughs> and, then, and then it appears? Yeah. But emergent can mean can mean lots of different things. It, you know, it, for example, some scientists often talk about liquidity or water being in a the wetness of water being an emergent property. Uh, just in the sense that you know individual molecules are not wet, but when you put them together, you get you get wetness. Uh, but th there's nothing sort of mysterious about that. There's nothing in principle inexplicable. We understand quite well the chemistry of of how you produce the these the superficial properties of water. Uh, but I think something very different is going on in the case of consciousness it's a, it's a complete mystery how uh, 
the kind of things we we study in neuroscience, things, you know, action potentials and calcium chambers and, you know, various kinds of neurotransmitter and, you know, all that wonderful stuff. I mean, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I'm absolutely fascinated by neuroscience and collaborate with my colleagues and try to stay as up to date as possible. But um, all of that story of the brain doesn't seem to mention feelings and experiences <laughs> it seems on the right. face of it that 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 whole story of um you know beha- 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 in processing information and behavioral functioning and electrochemical signaling could go on in the complete absence of experience you know um and so we're left with this mystery of you know how what we know about ourselves from the inside our feelings and experiences fits together with the neuroscientific story of the brain um you know so and some people think well you know th- this is ju- we just need to to carry on uh with our standard ways of investigating the brain and we'll crack it but i mean th- there are various ways in which this is a really a, a really different kind of problem one thing you know one way i like to press is just that um consciousness is not publicly observable right mm-hmm. so you know i mean our whole scientific me- method is based around observation. And I think when, when we generally talk about observation, we mean what's publicly observable. Um, yeah, what know, there's, there's kind of consensus mm, required. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, what you can, what you can test in a third-person way, what you can experimentally test and we can all agree on. Um, but the problem with consciousness is it's essentially private, right? I, you know... Only you can observe your own experiences in some sense. You know, I can't look, I can see the external markers of your sadness or your joy, you know, your tears or your smile, but I can't look inside your head and see your your happiness and your sadness. Um, now, you know, so now science is used to dealing with unobservables, right? Fundamental particles, for example, can't be directly observed. Mm, but true. It, it, in all of these other cases, we postulate uh, unobservables in order to explain what can be observed. You know, particles, electrons and quarks are postulated as part of the standard standard model of particle physics that explains so much that we can observe. But I think in the unique case of consciousness, the thing we are trying to explain is not publicly observable. Uh, and so I think this really constrains um, how we how we can deal with it experimentally. Um, so, you know, what, what, what it, we, we obviously do deal with it experimentally, you know, what neuroscientists, but what, because it's not publicly observable, what you, the only way you can gather data about consciousness is by asking people, right, about their private observations of their own feelings and experiences. And if you do that while, you're, while you scan people's brains with an fMRI, fMRI scanner, you can map correlations, right? You can discover various ways in which brain activity, various kinds of brain activity is correlated with various kinds of feelings and experiences. You know, you can discover a a certain kind of activity in the hypothalamus or something is correlated with feeling hungry or something. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, I think think that's the limits of what we can do experimentally because consciousness is not publicly observable. But unfortunately, important as that data is, I don't think it's the full story because what we ultimately want from a theory of consciousness is an explanation of those correlations. You know, why why are certain kinds of brain activity 
correlated with feelings and experiences. Why would that be? And I don't think just doing more neuroscience, just gathering more correlations is, is going to do that. So I think so, so that's, that's why we, I, one way of seeing why this isn't a problem we're just going to solve experimentally. We need to sort of, because consciousness of, it, it is not a publicly observable phenomenon. So, yeah. so that raises kind of two questions for me. Um, the first one that comes up, which is maybe the most striking, is what do you say to kind of some scientific thinkers who would respond to that by saying, we don't care why. Um, sometimes we're never going to know why. All we care is that it is. Yeah. Well, it depends what you mean by what. I mean, I'm not asking why in a sort of existentialist, going back to that sense, you know, mm -hmm. why are we here? What's the meaning of life? There's an interesting article uh, by a scientist recently saying, oh, these people worried about the problem of consciousness. It's just they're thinking of why in, the se in, in this existential sense of why are we here? What's it all about? But that's, that, that's not the question that's being asked here at all. It's, you know, it, it's in science, we want explanations, right? We want to know, you know, water boils at 100 degrees. Why is that the case? And we explain it. You know, we, we have chemical theories that explain quite nicely the superficial properties of water. You know, lightning, we see lightning in the sky, this flashing thing, and we want an explanation of that. And science comes along and gives us some theories of electrostatic discharge that explain that. Similarly, you know, when there are certain types of thing happen in my brain, I feel pleasure or pain or I see red. We want an explanation of that. So that so it's not why in some um, some deeply kind of meaning of life sense. It's just the, the standard scientific uh, demand for explanation. It's just that the phenomenon we're dealing with here is 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 a very unusual phenomenon, and hence I think you know the standard experimental methods of science don't quite important as they are. Don't quite give us the, the the full explanation i mean you could still say i don't care you know you have a similar similar issue in quantum mechanics i think where you know mm -hmm. quantum mechanics is is one of our most successful scientific theories you know it's you know almost all of our modern technology is is based on quantum mechanics in terms of prediction it's it's one of our most successful scientific theories the problem is no one knows what the hell that theory is telling us about reality, <laughs> you know. And there are all these True. different theories, <laughs> yeah. and and that, you know, some scientists respond to that and say, "Well, who cares? It works." Uh, this mm -hmm. is sometimes called the "shut up and calculate" approach. And uh, <laughs> you know, I, the, 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 the you know the scientist Sean Carroll has been talking a lot on his podcast about um, you know how how it it's been taboo for a long time to kind of worry about this. Uh, you know, people couldn't get jobs because they wanted to know what is going on. What is quantum mechanics telling us about reality? Uh, but I, I think just because you know, I think the natural human curiosity. Science isn't just about building bridges and curing disease and creating technology. It's about understanding the universe we live in, understanding reality, the reality that underlies our equations. And that's what people want in quantum mechanics. A lot of people increasingly want. And I think that's what we want with consciousness. Yes, it, the, the, the neuroscience is crucial. Those correlations that neuroscience gives us between um, brain activity and experience. And, you know, neuroscience can get very systematic about that. It's not just saying, you know, this brain state goes with this experience. 
But ultimately, what we at the end of the day, I think what we want to know is what's going on in reality. Why, you know, why is it that brain activity gives rise to um, kinds of experience? And I don't. So, and as I said, for the reason I said, I don't think that's a question that experimental neuroscience can answer. Interesting. So, so the other question that kind of came up through those explanations um, for me, and this is a more kind of from a neuroscience neuroscience perspective, is what do you say to, or have you have you been able to read some of the literature and grappled with the types of experiments that are much more interested in thresholds of consciousness? So, you know, really looking at the difference between somebody who is conscious and somebody who has a loss of consciousness and what is going on um, neuroscientifically, whether we're talking about holistically in the brain or whether we're starting to become a little bit more... Um, sort of fundamentalist and, and, you know, break it down into different regions or break it down into individual networks or even individual cells. When people slip into unconsciousness, different levels of coma and things like that, it does seem like we're learning more and more about what is maybe minimally required biologically to maintain what we think of as consciousness. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I'm absolutely fascinated by how, how, how much progress we've made here. I mean, some of the things we can do with, with binocular rivalry and, and with various forms of masking, uh, where we sort of, uh, I mean, the, the more colloquial term for that is subliminal images, right? You know, where we, mm-hmm. where we, we, uh, sl- slip in, uh, an image of something so quickly that the people don't consciously register it. It doesn't come into their, their conscious awareness. But we can see um, through asking various questions that that their brain has processed that that information. And um, you know it's it's gone qu- quite quite detailed into the into the into the cortex that the processing that's gone on. And what we've discovered actually I've been fascinated by is that even um semantic information uh judgments of the meaning of words go can go on subconsciously in these masking cases we can see this because oh i can't think offhand now the specific examples but we have a sort of subliminal image of 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 a particular word and then by asking even though the the, the subject doesn't consciously perceive it it's not in their conscious awareness we can see that their brain has processed uh the information about what that word means because of mm-hmm. because of the certain answers they give the associations that come to mind for them so you know it's absolutely fascinating this is an age old philosophical question actually do you need uh consciousness for understanding for understanding the meanings of words uh you might have thought as a philosopher that that you did but we can now show experimentally that um that that you don't this can you know semantic processing of of the meanings of words uh goes on to a large extent, subconsciously as well as consciously. Um, so, you know, this is all very important data. You know, you can't, you're not going to have a science of consciousness without it. And as you say, we're making progress on theorizing about the very general conditions for, for, for what is required for consciousness. I mean, one popular theory, the, the global workspace theory, which is roughly that what you are conscious of is a matter of the kinds of information that's broad broadcast throughout uh, much of the brain and is available for uh, for many different regions of the brain for controlling behavior. Um, 
Daniel Dennett called this fame in the brain or cerebral celebrity. Um, <laughs> An arrival view is, you know, the integrated information theory, according to which it's 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 integrated information that's the hallmark of consciousness. And one of the reasons people have got interested in panpsychism is because actually this theory entails, uh, although it has some empirical confirmation in the sense that it can explain which regions of the brain are associated with conscious and which not consciousness and which aren't which periods of sleep are associated with consciousness and which aren't but it also has panpsychist implications at least to the extent that it entails that consciousness is more widespread than we ordinarily take it to be because some degree of integrated information is is present in 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 many physical non-organic physical systems although there's disputes about how much empirical support the integrated information theory has but in any case you know this is all very important but at the end of the day i don't think this kind of work can get us beyond correlations and the reason is because on the one hand you're dealing with two things that are known about in different ways consciousness that's as it were pri- only privately observable you know only the person having the experience can be directly aware of it and the brain that's publicly observable so what we're doing when we're trying to um what's sometimes called the neural correlates of consciousness trying to find out what needs to go on in a brain to get consciousness we're trying to correlate um what we can observe publicly i.e. brain activity with what we can't observe publicly, people's private feelings and experiences. So by by relying on their testimony, we can correlate them up, but that in itself won't give us an explanation of why they're correlated. So that's, I think, where we have to step beyond the, um, the experimental neuroscience. So I guess probably now would be a good time, maybe I should have done it a bit earlier, to, okay. to ask you, um, perhaps you can just give us a little bit of a global overview of exactly what panpsychism is and what it kind of seeks to, like what kind of explanatory power it, it seems to have for you. Yeah, so um, so I guess in our, in our standard way of thinking about things, consciousness exists only in the brains actually could I, could I could I say one more thing about the science stuff <laughs> please yes <laughs> one thing i'm trying to press in my own work which is the reason for the title of my book galileo's error is that we shouldn't be surprised that our conventional scientific approach struggles to deal with consciousness and that's because our standard scientific approach was designed to exclude consciousness so a mm. key moment in the scientific revolution was Galileo's declaration that mathematics is to be the language of the new science, that the the new science is to have a purely quantitative vocabulary. But Galileo understood quite well that you can't capture consciousness in these terms because consciousness is a qualitative phenomenon, just in the sense that it involves qualities. If you think about the, the redness of a red experience or the smell of coffee or the taste of mint, you can't capture these kind of qualities in in the purely quantitative language of physical science, right? You can't capture it in an equation, um, the itchiness of an itch or the cold feel of ice. So, so Galileo said, right, back in 1623, right, if, if we want a purely mathematical quantitative science, we have to take these qualities of consciousness 
and put them in the soul, right outside of the domain of science. So mm-hmm. in Galileo's worldview, you've got this radical divide in nature between two domains. You know the 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 quantitative domain of science and the qualitative domain of consciousness. So you've got the the on the one hand the physical world with its purely quantitative mathematical properties, and on the other hand consciousness with its qualities of sounds and smells and colors and tastes. So this was the start of mathematical physics, you know, which has gone incredibly well. But I think what we've forgotten is that physics was never intended to be a complete description of reality. The the whole project was premised on putting consciousness outside of the domain of science. So I think if we now want a science of consciousness, we need to find a way of of bringing it back in of bringing together the these two domains the, the the quantitative domain of physical science and the qualitative reality of consciousness uh, and i think you know panpsychism the attraction of it is is it, is it gives us a way of of trying to do that all right guys i want to take a quick moment to thank the sponsors of this week's episode we've got two new sponsors this week starting with Masterclass. Now, Masterclass is an app. It's accessible on your phone, on the web, or on Apple TV that offers a variety of classes on a ton of different topics, and they're all taught by world-class masters at the top of their fields. Each class is broken out into individual video lessons, and there are downloadable materials for them, which you can explore at your own pace. Like, you can learn about conservation from Jane Goodall. You can learn about humor from David Sedaris. And my personal favorite one that I want to tell you about today is... Um, learning about scientific thinking and communication from none other than Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson. And of course, this is broken down, like I mentioned, into 13 different lessons, everywhere from cognitive bias to understanding the scientific method to thinking skeptically, um, cultural bias, that's so important, um, understanding your audience, and of course, the most important, that how you think is so much more important than what you think. Um, So there's this lesson plan. There's also a class workbook that you can download. And of course, you can learn on your own terms anytime, anywhere at your own pace. Guys, I highly, highly recommend you check it out. You can get unlimited access to every masterclass. And as a Talk Nerdy listener, you get 15% off of the annual all-access pass. All you've got to do is go to masterclass.com slash nerdy. That's masterclass.com slash nerdy for 15% off masterclass. I also want to thank ExpressVPN for their support of the show. All right. So what is ExpressVPN and how does it work? Well, it protects your privacy and security online, but it also allows you to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. And, you know, a lot of us are at home. We are watching a lot of stuff on Netflix right now, but eventually we're going to run out. So this week I've been checking out Rick and Morty on Netflix France. Why? Because I can. It's so easy to do. I just 
just fire up the ExpressVPN app. I change my location to France and refresh Netflix, and that's it. I can see everything that's offered there. See, this is how it works. ExpressVPN hides your IP address and lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. So you can choose from almost 100 different countries. It's like the Netflix library of every country out there. It's amazing. If you love anime, you can use ExpressVPN to access Japanese Netflix and be spirited away. Um, And it's not just Netflix, guys. It'll work with any streaming service, Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out out there, but the reason that I like ExpressVPN to watch shows is because it's super, super fast. There's never any buffering or lag, and you can stream in HD, no problem. It's also compatible with all of your devices, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and so much more. So you can watch what you want on a personal device or on a big screen wherever you are. And if you visit my special link right now at expressvpn.com slash nerdy, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. So support Talk Nerdy, watch what you want, and protect yourself with ExpressVPN at expressvpn.com slash nerdy. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. And so I guess the thing that when I sort of have tried to wrap my head around panpsychism that sticks out to me as something that makes it hard to square with my own basic, I don't know, personal understanding of reality is sort of the, I don't know if this is the right word to use, but religious or maybe spiritual is a better word to use, implications of it. And as an atheist or somebody who's like purely secular, um, that part doesn't sit as well for me. But then again, maybe I'm misunderstanding panpsychism at its fundamental level. So so I was hoping maybe you could help us, um, me and the listeners, understand a little bit more about what the, I guess, the theory, would you call it a theory or the philosophy um, uh, says? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess in our, in our standard way of thinking about things, consciousness exists only in the brains of highly evolved organisms. And so consciousness exists only in a tiny part of the universe and and only in very recent history, in terms of the history of the universe, at least. But according to panpsychism, uh, consciousness pervades the universe and is a fundamental feature of it. So it, it doesn't literally mean that everything is conscious. That's one common misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. The, the basic commitment is that the the fundamental building blocks of the of the physical world, perhaps electrons and quarks, uh, have unimaginably simple forms of experience, and the very complex uh, experience of the human or animal brain is somehow derived or built up from the very simple experience of the brain's most basic parts. So yeah, it sounds a bit wacky. As you say, it has these unfortunate sort of new age spiritual kind of (laughs) connotations. But, you know, I mean, this view has gone from being laughed at insofar as it was thought of at all to being taken very seriously, certainly in academic philosophy and in some parts of neuroscience. Um, You know, and the people who are defending it, uh, you know, myself, you know, David Chalmers and very good panpsychist philosopher Luke Roloffs. You know these people are complete atheist secularists, right? They're not. Hmm. They're not interested in trying to defend some kind of transcendent spiritual reality. 
they're just interested in explaining the natural phenomenon of consciousness, feelings and experiences. Whether or not you believe in God or some kind of spiritual reality, most of us believe in pain and pleasure and you know visual auditory experiences. And the problem is those very, mun- in, in a sense, mundane phenomena. You know, people think consciousness is mysterious. In a sense, it's really mundane. It's just, you know, pain. <laughs> Seeing red, you know, it's the most yeah. obvious everyday thing. It's, I guess it's so obvious we sort of forget about it because it's just there all the time. But it's, it's, it's such a challenge scientifically and philosophically to fit that into our standard scientific story of the world. And as I've said, I don't think our conventional scientific approach was designed to accommodate conscious experience. So it's just about, it's not about trying to justify something spiritual. It's just about trying to accommodate this undeniable phenomena of conscious subjective experience. Do you feel like there's a lot of crossover with this idea of panpsychism and some more kind of Eastern philosophies like Taoism? Um, I'd say so maybe in one direction, yeah. I, I mean, I suppose. I mean, if you if you independently have some some kind of um, spiritual convictions, um, mm-hmm. then probably panpsychism is perhaps a, a worldview that's that's more consonant with 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 that picture of the world, you know. Um, and as I said, it's may, maybe a picture of the world that's you know, slightly more consonant with human happiness. You know, materialism is kind of bleak in a way. It's sort of like a <laughs> mechanistic picture of nature and the cold immensity of empty space, whereas panpsychism was sort of conscious creatures in a conscious universe. So, but, you know, I think at the end of the day, the, the, this, the, the kind of panpsychism that's being defended is, um, is stripped of any of these kind of spiritual or mystical connotations. Um, it's 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 simply an attempt to try and bring together, as I said, what we know to be true from the inside, feelings and experiences, and, and what science is telling us from the outside. It's simply a way of integrating consciousness into our scientific picture of the world. So yeah. So so kind of like. <laughs> I feel like in some respects, probably because of the types of questions that I've been asking you, we're almost talking around um, panpsychism instead of getting to the meat of like what what exactly the philosophy says. So when you said kind of this idea of conscious creatures in a conscious universe, like what does that actually mean? Like how would you define the the central tenets? Yeah. So I think the place we need to start really is, and uh, Mm -hmm. well, I just say. The re- one of the reasons for the rediscovery the, of, of panpsychism in academic philosophy is is due to the rediscovery of certain important work from the 1920s by the um, the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the, the scientist Arthur Eddington, who was incidentally the first scientist to confirm Einstein's general theory of relativity experimentally after the First World War. But um, so I'm inclined to think these guys did in the 1920s for the science of consciousness, what Darwin did in the 19th century for the science of life. And it's sort of a tragedy mm. of history that it got forgotten about for so long, but it's it's recently been rediscovered and is, you know, is causing a lot of interest in academic philosophy. And part of the reason I wrote this book was to try and 
get that out to a broader audience. But anyway, I'm I'm, I'm still talking around it. So let me let me let me cut to the heart <laughs> of it. So the starting point of Russell and Eddington was that physic physical science doesn't really tell us what matter is. And that seems like a kind of really bizarre claim at first. You know, you read a physics textbook, you, you know, you seem to learn all these incredible things about the nature of space and time and matter. But what Russell and Eddington realized is that physics, for all its richness, is confined to telling us about the behavior of matter, what it does. So, you know, physics tells us, for example, you know, that matter has mass and charge. You know, think of what, what does physics tell us about an electron? Physics tells us an electron has mass and charge. Uh, and these, these properties are completely defined in terms of behavior. Things like attraction, repulsion, resistance to acceleration. This is all about the behavior of the electron. Physics tells us what an electron does, but it doesn't tell us anything about what it is independently of its behavior. So, you know, I sometimes uh, make an analogy to a chess piece. You know, if you've got a chess piece on a board... You might want to know, uh, you know, what it what it does. If it's if it's a bishop, it moves diagonally any number of spaces. But you might also be interested in the chess piece itself. You know, is it made of wood? Is it made of plastic? Is it made of metal? Uh, similarly, when we get down to fundamental particles like electrons, you know, you might be interested in what physics tells you about how the electron behaves, what it does. But you might also be interested in the electron itself. What is an electron independently yeah. of what it does? So, so this is this is this their starting point. There's this, in a sense, there's this huge hole in our standard scientific story of the universe. Physics tells us what matter does, but not what it is. Uh, and then the so then the proposal of Russell and Eddington was to put consciousness in that hole. So there's you know we're looking for a place for consciousness. There's this. There's this huge hole in our scientific story of the universe. Let's try and put consciousness in the hole. So the thought is there's just matter, maybe particles or fields, you know, nothing spiritual or supernatural. But matter can be described from two perspectives. So physics describes it, as it were, from the outside in terms of what it does, its behavior. But matter from the inside is made up of consciousness. So it's this beautiful simple, elegant way of bringing together what we know about ourselves on the inside, the reality of feelings and experiences, and what science tells us about matter from the outside. So that, that's, that's really the attraction of the view. I like to put it, you know, in the 1620s, Galileo took consciousness out of the scientific story. In the 1920s, I think Russell and Eddington found a way of bringing it back in again, of bringing mm. together this, this qualitative and quantitative domains. Anyway, sorry to interrupt you. Not at all. I mean, I, I guess my original response to that, and it's it's likely an ignorant response just based on um, the kind of brief explanation that you gave me, is I guess I'm I'm interested in how this is different than talking about emergence. In that, it still feels like there's kind of a miracle component to the explanation, like oh, it's the intrinsic or the intersubjective, or it's, you know, kind of what's happening in an electron from the inside. But we don't know anything about that. It's still just a black box, no? Yeah. So I think what's what, what's wrong with a standard materialist, as you say, emergentist approach, <clears throat> in mm. my view, is that it has to try and bridge this gap between... Um, 
the purely quantitative properties of neuroscience, physical science, and the qualitative reality of consciousness. You have to try and get from uh, this purely quantitative story of what's going on in the brain to the qualitative reality of seeing blue and smelling coffee and so on. And no one's made the slightest progress on bridging that gap. And I think there are good philosophical reasons to think the attempt to do that is, is, is just is incoherent. I mean, we could go into that. But so, so, so that's what you're trying to do in the standard approach. You're trying to bridge a gap, which I, which I think is unbridgeable. What we're mm. trying to do in the panpsychist approach, we're not trying to bridge a gap. We're putting consciousness in from the start. So the idea is, mm -hmm. you know, there's just really on this view, all there is is consciousness. So we're, it's important to emphasize that this isn't dualism. You know, this isn't when people hear about panpsychism, they tend to think, um, well, the electron has its physical properties like mass, spin, and charge. <clears throat> and then it has these um, consciousness properties as well. That would be a kind of dualism. Uh, the, the, um, the, the physicist Sabine Hossenfelder has, has written a, a critique of panpsychism on her blog recently, but she was assuming this kind of dualistic position of panpsychism. But that's not. And to be clear, to be clear, dualism is this kind of uh, oh, yeah. classic philosophy, as opposed to monism, that there's there's the self or the soul or the uh, mind. I guess mind is the best way to put it. That the mind and the brain are two completely distinct things that can kind of interact or have power over one another, as opposed to a monist perspective, which is that they're kind of two sides of the same coin. Like they're so interwoven that for all intents and purposes, they they can't be, they're inextricably linked, I guess is a way to put yeah, it. Yeah, sorry. I, 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 yeah, absolutely. I should have okay. explained that. You know, so yes, no, the, the, the ancient view that consciousness is in the soul, that this is outside mm -hmm. of the physical workings of the body and the brain. Um, I, I, and But similarly, you, you might have a kind of understanding of panpsychism where, okay, it's not belief in the soul, but you believe in the physical properties of the electron, like mass, spin, and charge, and also these consciousness properties. So there's two kinds of radically different properties. You've got the divide again. But that's not the view. The view is that mass, spin, and charge are forms of consciousness. So hmm. science tells us what they do, but what they are are forms of consciousness. So at the basic micro level, we've got simple forms of consciousness at the um, at the level of neurophysiology of the human brain we've got complex forms of consciousness uh, but there's just consciousness there so you're not trying to bridge a gap now what you but you you might still make the criticism that you that you earlier made you might say well this is you're not explaining anything you know if you're just assuming <laughs> it right but you know science there is plenty of precedent in science for non-reductive explanations, that is to say, explanations where you take the phenomenon as basic. So, for example, in the 19th century, when Maxwell came up with his theory of electromagnetism, he didn't explain electricity and magnetism in terms of the kind of mechanical properties science was already committed to. He postulated new electromagnetic properties and laws and explained electromagnetism on that basis. Similarly, for the panpsychist, you know, the it's early days in the science of consciousness, but the final theory of consciousness, when it eventually comes along, it won't explain consciousness in terms of non-consciousness. It will postulate very basic forms of consciousness 
and explain human consciousness in, in terms of those simpler forms of consciousness. So it's just a different kind of explanatory project. Um, yeah. And so I, I'm, I'm so interested at kind of what... I've always loved philosophy and I've always loved reading about different historical kind of stories that philosophers told about how to um, explain or perceive or reframe our understandings of reality. And I'm so interested in, in kind of like, I don't know what, what it entails, what it's like, I guess I could I don't I'm not even sure how to frame this question but as a working academic philosopher like what do you do every day <laughs> and like what is the experience like for you I think we've sort of lost touch with um what philosophy is all about and I think I think in many ways we've forgotten that there is a philosophy behind science and it was it was designed 400 years ago by Galileo and it and it has certain um philosophical components that that aren't justified by experiment or observation. So, I mean, so, you know, before Galileo, people thought the physical world was filled with qualities, you know, that there were colors on the surfaces of objects, uh, smells floating through the air, tastes inside food. That was the, the philosophical worldview following, you know, Aristotle. Um, but Galileo wanted this mathematical quantitative theory of nature. And he thought, we need to get rid of these qualities, these colors and sounds and smells and tastes. So he said, I'm going to propose a new philosophy of nature. And then according to this philosophy of nature, those qualities, colors, sounds, smells, they're not really out there in the physical world. They're just in the soul. So, you know, colors, if you're looking at a tomato, you know, the, the redness isn't really out there on the surface of the tomato for Galileo. It's in it's in the consciousness of the person perceiving the tomato, or the you know the spiciness isn't really in the paprika; it's in the consciousness of the person eating it. And that kind of explains intersubjectivity. It explains yeah. why it is that your experience of a tomato is fresh and delicious, and mine is gag worthy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like yeah. Well, it's fascinating, actually. That's another fascinating finding of. Of neuroscience, you know how we've discovered that. The, oh, of well, more generally of neurophysiology, mm. how, how people's tomato tastes, tomato, tomato, is um, <laughs> is is so sensitive to um, to to actual physiological differences. So I think people mm. who don't like tomatoes are people look down on them a little bit, think they're not cultured or something. But it can yeah. actually be simply due to physiological differences. But <laughs> yeah, so so Galileo, you know, stripped the world of these qualities so that we could have a mathematical picture of nature. Uh, and so, you know, you can't get rid of philosophy. I mean, we, we tried to in the 1930s and 40s with logical positivism, the view that, you know, if, 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 uh, if, if a sentence, so the logical positivists thought, if a sentence can't be uh, empirically verified or falsified, then it was just meaningless. It was just gibberish. So they hoped in this way to dissolve philosophy and just get us down to questions that we can answer in, with empirical science. Unfortunately, the view is, I mean, the view is now universally rejected by philosophers of science, not least because people realized it's self-defeating, right? Because I, I, I remember learning this when I was doing philosophy at high school and I was just absolutely fascinated. The, the, the point is that so the principle of the logical positivists was 
um, at what I've just said, right? If a sentence can't be verified, then it's meaningless. But that principle itself can't be verified. And so if it's true, it's meaningless. So, you know, people just realize that, I mean, that's the part of the role of philosophy, that, you know, analytic rigor of philosophy to see that actually this view was just self-defeating, incoherent in a sense. So actually, you know, the philosophers of science have universally rejected positivism, but you do find it still comes up, you know, people still have this, even though we've rejected it decades ago, people still have this sort of scientific view that, uh, you know, we we can get all the answers from empirical science. Um, and, well, and I see it all the you know, time in the world that I exist in because, you know, other than my academic pursuits, I have been working as a science communicator for the past decade plus. And one of the podcasts that I work on is The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. I'm heavily kind of involved in skeptic communities. And one of, I think, the biggest kind of fallacies that I find within the skeptic community is a heavy reliance on logical positive logical positivism without any room for what I kind of my counter to that, that I see is a more constructivist or a more postmodern view, like figuring out how those things play nicely together. I actually just did a big talk on it when the last time I did a little bit of a tour down in Australia and New Zealand um, called like, is constructivism a four letter word? Simply because I wanted to bring this idea to a lot of the skeptics in the room that saying if science can't touch it, or if we can't view it experimentally, if we can't show some sort of um, understanding utilizing this method, that it's not relevant, basically means that you're closing your eyes to the vast majority of experience. Like there's got to be other epistemologies out there for us to try and understand existence, because science only by the way that it was designed can handle natural phenomena that are observable and, and um, I guess, uh, changeable. You know, you've got to be able to manip manipulate variables in an effort to be able to say anything about something scientifically. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we're of one mind on this. You know, I mean, skeptics are very important for debunking questions that are empirical questions. Like, you know, mm -hmm. are there ghosts? How old is the universe? You know, these are empirical questions. Yeah. <laughs> and really we important. Want, you know, we want empirical scientists to, you know, subject them to, you know, not not have people saying bullshit but that's not that's not empirically <laughs> backed up. But but not all questions are, are are empirical questions. And I mean, this is the most straightforward thing that I try to press. I mean, coming back to where we started, I think our standard approach to science is what we're trying to do is find the simplest theory consistent with what we can publicly observe, what we can subject to public observation, experimental testing. If you stick rigorously to that methodology, you will not believe in consciousness because consciousness is not something that can be publicly observed. Uh, you know, we believe it on the basis of our immediate awareness of our feelings and experiences. So Daniel Dennett the philosopher uh, is wonderfully consistent on this, right? So, I mean, he's the polar opposite position on consciousness to me. He thinks <laughs> consciousness can't be observed from the third person, so it doesn't exist. He thinks the only, I mean, he goes back and forth over, you know, whether you literally say, you know, he thinks consciousness exists in some sense, doesn't in others. But what he does think is the only data for a theory of consciousness is publicly observable behavior. 
That's mm. it. Once we've explained the publicly observable behavior, uh, that's the end of the theory. Okay, I, I think there's something else we need to explain. Feelings and experiences. Where do they come from? Why do they exist? You know, we know they're real, but they're not publicly observable. So I think consciousness is, is the most obvious case where we do need to rethink how we're thinking about science. I mean, I, I kind of think we're going through a phase of history where people are so blown away by the success of physical science and the wonderful technology it's produced that this creates in people a sense of, you know, this is it. This is the truth. You know, we know yeah. the truth now. Uh, you know, we don't have all the answers, but we know how to get them. But I think it, once you trace back physical science to, you know, if you ask Galileo about this, if you were to talk to Galileo about this problem of explaining consciousness in the terms of physical science, he'd say, of course you can't do that. I designed physical science for a very specific, narrow task. And it wasn't the task of dealing, of accounting for the qualitative, unobservable reality of consciousness. So, you know, and I think it's hard to shift people on this because I think it does get involved in people's identity and sense of themselves. And, you know, people talk about religion as a crutch, but I think a certain kind of scientific worldview can give people a sense of, you know, how how they understand truth and the world. And yeah, so so that's what's most important to me really is, is is even more important than panpsychism is the problem of consciousness is not just another scientific problem and and i just mm -hmm. try to hammer that home and and the, the way i've found most powerful for doing that is just to keep hammering home the point that it's not publicly observable and you don't often i haven't found yet a, a good answer to that apart from daniel dennett's which is to say yeah so it doesn't exist but i don't yeah. think many people will go for that you know, pretty right. Or I guess line. the alternate is that kind of like, as we were saying before, m maybe it exists, maybe it doesn't. But the fact that we can't interrogate it means that it's not really relevant to our worldview. Like that's yeah, kind of a very yeah. materialistic, right. um, yeah, logical positivist view, which again, I mean, I guess I get it. I mean, it's, it's, it's a clean way for some people to be able to make sense of reality and maintain a very consistent worldview. I just think it's, uh, sadly, I think it's a bit impoverished. I think it's like there's so much beauty and so much profundity that um, viewing the world in that way is very lacking. It's it's an intellectually, I guess, honest way to live your life, but it's very narrow. Um, and I don't know, it kind of bums me out. I, I just can't <laughs> physically... I can't exist in that kind of very strict um, pair of glasses because if I do so, I just continue to have questions about things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think this is important. I think, you know, consciousness is at the root of human identity. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's fundamentally we relate to each other as conscious beings with feelings and experiences. Uh, you know, it's arguably the basis of everything that's important in human existence. And so I think it, it, it is a problem, I think. I suspect if our official scientific worldview doesn't have a place for consciousness, which which I think it doesn't controversially. You know, I think that can maybe have an effect even on people's mental health. You know, I think um, mm -hmm. there's a lot of crazy shit going on in the world at the moment. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think there are there are a lot of economic and political explanations for that. But I'm not talking about the coronavirus, by the way. But I think some of some of the, what's going on wrong with the world at the moment. I think a little bit of it might be. 
a, a sense of alienation, a sense of not understanding how we fit into the universe. And I wonder how much the attraction of nationalism or or fascism is is that it tells you a story of how you fit into the world. Uh, and I think one small part of that is the fact that we don't understand how as conscious beings we fit into the universe. So, you know, I think this is important. I mean, it doesn't mean everyone has to work on it. It doesn't, you know, if you just, if you want to do neuroscience and, um, you know, you're not interested in the, what, you know, what's sometimes called the hard problem of consciousness, that's fine, right? It's not like, it's not <laughs> everyone has to do this. And, the, you know, there's very important work you can do without, you know, very important empirical work you can do without worrying about, you know, the, these uh, philosophical questions of consciousness. But, and if you just want to say, I'm agnostic, I don't know what the truth is, I'm not, you know, that's not what interests me, that's absolutely fine. But I think it is natural noble human curiosity to want to know, to want to be curious about what is going on in reality and try and have our best guess uh, about what, about what the answer is. Oh, I so agree. I think, uh, you know, it's, it's one of the things that we sometimes in modern society have grown maybe a little bit lazy, or we've been privileged to be able to, um, forget or or become distracted from these basic fundamental questions. Like very often you'll meet people that say, oh, I'm, I'm not very political. And I'm always like, oh, that's such a privileged position to be in. Like you have to be political if you if you are in a group that has been disenfranchised, right? Like it's a fundamental to your, your freedom and your safety to be political. And so it's, it's, it's a privilege to not be political political. And I think in some ways, it's a privilege to not think philosophically or to not think scientifically about these kinds of questions. Um, and again, like you just said, I, I want to reiterate that not everybody has to dedicate their lives to these things. That's why we're so grateful for people like you and for people like Sean Carroll and for people like X, Y, and Z, because you guys have dedicated your lives and your academic career so that we get to read the fruits of your labor. But to never even think about these things, to me, is so um bleak like to, it's it, i would feel impoverished um you know mentally if i didn't sometimes just question these things it doesn't mean i have to know the answer but i like to be as informed as possible i have no idea if i agree with panpsychism or not i want to dig deeper into it but um i'm glad to know that there are all of these problems that have been worked out or are being actively worked on um so that when i have a little idea a little kind of um light bulb going off in my head i don't have to feel like i'm alone in the world and like i'm the first person to ever uh, think about this. I can go and I can find other writers and other thinkers and other philosophers who have s developed these ideas in a kind of thoroughly fleshed out way so that I can start to piece together my own worldview. Because ultimately, isn't that what it's about, right? We're all kind of floating around, interacting with each other. We have this relational intersubjectivity and we just want to have a, a, a very rich understanding of our place in the universe. Yeah, it's a common endeavor, isn't it? And the, the empirical mm. science have the very important role to play that I think philosophers have a role to play. And I mean, I, th I think part of the problem actually, and is attacking my own profession now is philosophers don't reach out enough. Everything is so specialized these days. And, mm. you know, if you try and read an academic 
uh, article in philosophy, in philosophy and you don't have a PhD, you're going to struggle to understand it. You know, every, philosophers don't try and communicate to a broader audience. And so, you know, I mean, this is part of the reason I wrote, so I've written an academic book uh, a few years ago called Consciousness and Fundamental Reality aimed at a, a, an academic audience. But this, I wanted to write this mm-hmm. book, Galileo's Error, just trying to communicate in as accessible a way as possible these ideas that that are, that I think are, are important and people are interested in. Um, just just to come back to the, the politics thing, I was wondering, I mean, just what, you know, what's really annoying me in the UK at the moment with coronavirus is some people saying, we've got to take the politics out of it. And what they mean by that is, you can't criticize the government's approach. And I think, you know, the UK government's approach has been disastrous in many ways. We're just slow. And 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 we're going to have tens of thousands of deaths. I'm, I, I'm afraid. I mean, I hope not, but I worry because of that. And people saying, I mean, yeah, people saying, you know, take the politics out of it, it means you, you, you can't hold the government to account. It's the same with the, our National Health Service here. There's always often a call to take the politics out of it. But you know, it's it's a political matter because our, our current government, in their hearts, want to want to get rid of it, want to privatize the national health service. So, so you know, there's there's we've got to have a we've got to, we can't get rid of these questions. Just like you can't get rid of philosophical questions, the logical positivists tried, and unfortunately, they don't they don't they don't go away. They just keep you awake at night. <laughs> Absolutely. At least they keep me awake at night. And I think that's probably the case for a lot of people listening to this show. I think in some ways that is the appeal of Talk Nerdy and of and of kind of all the different um, crossover between this show and others that people listen to is that it, it, it promotes thinking, you know, and thinking is good. This is something that fundamentally feels good to be, I mean, it's hard and it can be a little bit painful, but on the other end of that pain is, um, is meaning. And, uh, you know, I, it's easy to say, and I think we, we often, uh, find ourselves in a very cynical place to say not enough people think anymore. And I know that that's not true. I think fundamentally we are thinking more than we ever did in the past, but, um, there is a privilege again, I come back to that, to not having to, to do the work, um, uh, because of the kind of things that our parents and grandparents and grandparents, grandparents have, um, brought to us. They brought us a lot of other difficulties that we have to work (laughs) ourselves out of, but, um, but the privilege to be a more educated and more literate society is definitely, um, a net positive. So, um, I mean, also the, 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 mm -hmm. the, sorry, just that, I mean, the, the, apart from anything else that the critical thinking skills you get in a philosophy degree are important. You know, mm. living in a democracy, seeing through the bullshit of uh, po- politicians' arguments and, you know, the the logical fallacies they make, you know, being able to rigorously tear apart, rigorously analyze somebody's argument. I mean, even if you don't go, most people who do a philosophy degree don't go on to do philosophy, but those skills, I think, of of understanding arguments and uh, being able to ridic- ridicule, uh, rigorously assess them, I think, is is a really important skill in a democracy. And um, yeah, so I think that's... Oh, I completely agree. I mean, even at the undergrad level, which that's kind of where my philosophy training stopped, although I think it's coming back in at the PhD level because I'm more I- interested in a philosophically 
theoretically grounded approach to psychotherapy. Um, but even as it was my minor in undergrad, um, uh, that armed me with some of the most fundamental critical thinking skills that have allowed me to kind of develop as a skeptical thinker. Um, yeah, without, without that kind of training, um, I don't know. I don't know where I'd be. And also, I think a lot of people forget that if you're getting a PhD in any field, that's a doctorate of philosophy. <laughs> and um, and at the very beginning, at least, that's what that there was something there was meaning to that. You should have you yeah, should have to be yeah. able to think philosophically about your physics or about your um, environmental science or yeah, whatever the case may be. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. part of what this book was, was it was a defense of philosophy as well. I spent some time, mm. you know, justifying this idea that philosophy has a role to play um yeah uh, such an important one as well 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 philip you know uh, i'm i'm sure there are things we didn't cover if there's anything really striking that you think of in the next few minutes let's make sure that we do but i i wanted to let you know that i close every episode of talk nerdy the same way i ask my guests these two basic kind of big picture questions because i'm always so so interested to see how how each of my individual guests based on their work based on their life's journeys kind of conceptualize these things so i was hoping that you'd be willing to take a crack at them sure why not all right. So I want you to think about the future in whatever um, context is relevant to you today. You know, that could be informed by what's going on in the world, could be informed by your work, um, by your personal life, you know, whatever the case may be. And I want you to tell me, number one, what is the thing that keeps you up the most at night? The thing that you're maybe a little bit pessimistic, even borderline cynical about, like your, your true fundamental worry. And then on the flip side of that, um, what are you genuinely kind of authentically looking forward to optimistic about not just lip service but like truly um have a have a positive outlook on wow mm. <laughs> um i suppose on the negative side i'm um i mean i'm very i'm a i'm a politics nerd <laughs> mm. and politics worries me i suppose i mean i mean i guess my my political philosophy is Basically, that that my my lifetime was when it all went crap. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 41 now, and you know, so my basic my philosophy of recent history is, um, you know, the 30 years after the after the war in, in after the Second World War in the US, the UK, um, and much of Western Europe, we did it right. Mm. Right, we worked out how to have a properly mixed economy, high taxation, uh, high regulation. And, you know, society got more prosperous, society got more equal. The baby boomer generation is the luckiest that ever lived. Uh, and then from the 80s onwards, mm. we decided on Wild West capitalism. You know, we cut taxes, we cut regulation, and we've had crisis after crisis. We've had 2008 when the bankers bought the world to their knees and ordinary people have been paying the price for the last 10 years. Uh, so I think, you know, we've seen, we've seen these two options. We've tried out both options. Uh, and I think we, we history, recent history tells us which one worked. And some people, there's a kind of, some people think, with, but when you had these high, high levels of taxation, um, uh, that people didn't pay them, but actually it's been a recent empirical study by two economists at Bar Berkeley, I can't remember the names mm -hmm. now, that, um, the wealthy did pay much more tax. They they paid on average fifty percent of their income 
um, mm. you know, their entire income. Whereas now in the States, this is, by the way, it's, it's around 23%. So, oh, yeah, you know, so, 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 but, uh, you know, what really, I thought 2008, I thought, well, everything's going to change now. Everything's going to yeah. change. This has been systematically proved that this market fundamentalism, this neoliberalist approach doesn't work. And I was just flabbergasted. Is that a US word as well as a UK word? I was blown Absolutely. away by yep. that, you know, yep. that that our government in the UK persuaded everyone that it was just a fault of the last Labour government spending too much money. And then we had 10, you know, 10 years of harsh, harsh public sector cuts that have resulted in tens of thousands of lost lives. Uh, and I, I mean, that's what's really, really politicized me is just, uh, and, and I'm, you know, so I guess it's made me pessimistic. And we're now in the, this new crisis that is, we're going to end up much more indebted than 2008. Uh, you know, our, our government here are paying, rightly, I think, 80% of wages of anyone in the country who can't yeah. work. Uh, are we going to spend 50 years of austerity, 50 years of public sector pay cuts? And anyway, so that's what worries me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm with I, you on that, I have to say. What, what I'm optimistic about, I suppose, is my work on is not my work on is what I'm optimistic about is how things are changing on consciousness, on the philosophy and science of consciousness. You know, I think we've things have changed so quickly. We've gone from, for much of the 20th century, consciousness was a taboo topic that you, you it wasn't thought of as subject, proper subject matter for serious science. You know, perhaps the height, height of this was the behaviorists, you know, who thought the only proper focus for science of mind was behavior that you can measure and quantify. Uh, I think from towards the end of the 20th century, the 1990s, we do start to get people taking the problem of consciousness as a serious scientific issue. It came to be okay to be working on consciousness. Um, uh, and I think things are changing so quickly. I mean, I, I, but I think still, though, the approach of many is to say, oh, we, there is a problem. We just need to do more, more neuroscience and we'll solve it. So, I, you know, what I try to press is as I said, this isn't just another scientific problem. This, in many ways, our conventional scientific approach wasn't designed for this problem. And I think that really, you know, people really are starting to come to this view now. We're starting to see scientists and philosophers coming together to make progress on this issue um, and start to see that, you know, that we really need to in, not that not that we can't have a science of consciousness, but if we want a science of consciousness, we need to really rethink what science is. Um, and I think, you know, it's really exciting um, how much is changing quickly, and I'm really optimistic about the future. And I think it's it offers hope, not just that we can resolve this you know, very deep challenge for contemporary science, but also I think that it can transform in a positive way our understanding of, of what it means to be a human being and what it means to live in this universe. And so, yeah, so I'm very hopeful about the area I work in. Uh, and I'm very pessimistic about everything else. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> I love it. But, 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 but you've got to live in hope. And I like, who's the line? I can't remember who said this now. Pessimism of the intellect, but optimism of the will. And oh. that's that's what I try to live by, you know. 
you know, you've got to have hope and you've got to keep fighting and yeah. Yeah. I think that's the, probably the party line of like every scientist and philosopher (laughs) out there. I love that so much. Well, gosh, Philip, this has been an absolute joy. Everybody, the book is Galileo's Error, Foundations for a New Science of Consciousness. Philip, thank you so much. I've learned so much today. Oh, thank you, Cara. That's I've really enjoyed the conversation, and I'm going to explore um, existentialist psychotherapy. But, but I what love the, it. What, yes, what is the word do. again? What is the title again? Uh, yeah, like that. existentialist. That, that works. Yeah, existential psychology. Yeah, that existential sounds really, really fascinating. Check out Irvin Yalom. He's Irvin amazing. Yalom. Okay, yeah, he's I great. will do. <laughs> And everybody listening, thank you for coming back week after week. I'm really looking forward to the next time we all get together to talk nerdy. Advancements in the medical field are giving nurses faster, more effective results than ever before. They should expect the same from their education, too. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format allows you to set your own deadlines and leverage your experience to move faster through your program. So the faster you move, the more money you save. When you're ready, we'll be here. Visit capella.edu for a trial course at no cost to you. Capella University. Don't just learn, learn smarter.